So I just want to start off with this, that the Song of Solomon, as the teaching team, myself, uh, Richard Dawson, all the teaching team, when we were getting together to study Song of Solomon, to teach it, it was a very hard one for us to grasp and to understand and and to find direction uh, on how to teach this. Because I will just say right now, throughout the next eight weeks, that this sermon series will be very difficult for a lot of us. Because it deals with love. Uh, in, in this context, it deals with a romantic love, marriage. Uh, it deals with sexuality. It deals with romance. It deals with intimacy. Uh, and, and these are very powerful, powerful aspects of all of our lives. Because when it comes to love, especially an intimate love uh, that requires romance, that requires uh, uh, just honesty and vulnerability. It's powerful because, A, it's what we were all created for. Uh, B, it's something that we all long for. And, and C, we all have something in common with this idea of love and, and, and relationships. That we, we've all felt the joys of it. All of us, we've felt the joys of love, whether it's from a spouse, a significant other, whether it's from family or friends. All of us, we have that commonality that we've all experienced the joys of love. And, and unfortunately, on the same side of that, we've all experienced the pains of love and intimacy. We've all chased and pursued love and intimacy. We've all had love and intimacy. We've, some of us have lost love and intimacy. And so as you can see, as we talk about Song of Solomon, where this whole book is talking about and concentrated on love, that something in us is going to be stirred. And I just want to warn you about that right now. And my second warning is this, is that uh, Song of Solomon uses language that uh, on the offset we may not understand because it's very poetic, uh, and, but it deals with a lot of sexuality. Uh, and for the Bible, it's very explicit. And so just a heads up on that. Uh, and if one message is more explicit than the other, uh, we'll send out an email and we'll give you a heads up just in case you're very sensitive to that. Uh, or if you typically bring your children in, it might not be the best, best service for them. So I'll give you a heads up on that. And so uh, I just want to pray for our time. Uh, our series, our first one comes from Song of Solomon chapter 1. And I'm going to pray, but let me just read our scripture today. It's just from verse 1 through 8. It says this. It says, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is perfume poured out, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us, uh, let us make haste, the king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you, we will extol your love and more, uh, more than wine, rightly do they love you. Verse 5 says, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyards. But by my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you find pasture, your, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. 
For why should I be like one who is veiled beside the flock of your companions? This is loaded, and I know some of you guys are like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, we'll get into that. We'll unpack that. Before that, let me pray. God, thank you so much that you deal with all aspects of our life, even in your scriptures. And we thank you that you speak to us about such an important matter of our lives, which is love, which is intimacy, which is connectedness, which is even joy and pain. So help us to hear from you today. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to start off with confession. Several years ago, when I was a young boy, uh, I was obsessed with collecting baseball cards. And I know this is a lot of us in the room here, whether you're a guy or a girl, uh, you have experienced the fascination with baseball cards. Am I right? Yes, please, thank you. Some love here. Uh, and I remember I would just get packages and boxes of baseball cards as gifts, and I would have just uh, shoe, uh, uh, shoe boxes worth of, of baseball cards just all over my room. And I remember as I collected baseball cards, I, I, I had like three categories of these cards. I had the ones that weren't very valuable and I would just put in the shoe boxes. And then I would have other ones that I would put in plastic cases, right? This is the one uh, that's important to me, that's worth value. I would put it into a plastic case. And then there was this third option, which is on rare occasions, I would have these hard plastic casing where I would put the most valuable baseball cards and I would put them in and I would have to screw it shut to make sure that it's protected, that it's cherished, that nothing would happen to them. Now, uh, the way that I decided on which baseball cards goes where uh, is that every month there would be this magazine, not just the online magazine, it's, it's an actual magazine. I don't know if you guys still read those or not. Uh, but I would get these magazines. It was called the, it was the Baseball Beckett. Uh, and inside the Beckett, you would look up the card that you have, uh, and it would tell you how much it's literally worth, like, uh, and, and depending on the way they performed. So on weeks and months that they performed well, uh, if you look up the card in the Beckett, the price of that value of that card would go sky high. It would be worth so much and uh, on the other side is if that baseball player uh, did really bad that week, then the price of that, or that month, the price of that card would actually go down. The value of that card was strictly contingent uh, on, the va on how well this person performed on the field. And again, if they did awesome, if they did well, their card would be worth a lot. If they failed, if they did bad, then the worth of their card would drop significantly. And, and I remember uh, thinking about this story, thinking about uh, how I would collect and separate baseball cards. And even though this comparison does very little justice to what we're talking about, uh, this is true about our lives and our stories and the way we value ourselves in the midst of love and, and receiving love and giving love to one another. Because here's the deal. Somewhere along the way, we have been convinced. We have been convinced that our own worthiness and value is something that can be achieved or something that can be attained. 
which is oftentimes contingent upon some metric of performance. When we do well, then our worth goes up. When we do bad, when we make mistakes, when we make poor choices, then our value, our worth goes down. And the problem with this then is that the worth of ourselves becomes very fluid, right? Some days where we feel very worthy, we feel really good about ourselves, we have a lot of love for ourselves, which then allows us to see others as worthy, which, which allows us to, to love others the way that we understand that we are loved ourselves. But the problem is oftentimes that, that is contingent upon how we live, what we do, what we not do, and it ends up being fluid. And here's the big idea today, and how, this is how we connect the dots. It's this. It's to love, and to be loved begins first by believing that you're worthy of it. To be able to love, which means to give love and to receive love, begins by understanding and believing, truly believing that we are worthy of that love. Because if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, some of us in here don't believe that about ourselves. We don't believe that we're worthy to give love, we don't believe that we're worthy particularly to receive love. Because again, it's based on this metric of, of what we do or what we don't do. And when we don't do, when we fail, we, we figure out, we realize we somehow believe this lie that we're not worthy of love from God, that we're not worthy of love from our spouses, our friends, our family, whatever it is, because we've defined our worthiness on what we do. And so what we see in the first chapter of Song of Solomon, uh, it sets up the storyline, and it becomes the very base of what it means to live out this love in future chapters, chapter 2 through chapter 8. And, and this is our starting point, and it's the starting point, and it's this question of this, do you feel worthy to receive love? Do you feel worthy to give love? Do you feel loved in order for you to take that and to give it to others? And unfortunately, a lot of us would say no. In the first chapter of Song of Solomon, this woman uh, embodies this understanding of what it feels like and what it looks like to live out, yes, I do feel worthy. And it's lessons that we can grasp when it comes to love. And so basically, this is our starting point. This is where we need to be, right here, in order for us to go there. Yes, in the future chapters, we're going to be talking about sexuality. We're going to be talking about relationships. We're going to talk about loving one another. We're going to be talking about serving one another. We're going to talk about being connected with one another. But, but before we go there, the question starts here. Do you feel worthy enough to love? Do you feel worthy enough to feel and to receive love? Because in order for us to love and be loved, we have to believe that we're worthy of it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the background. We're going to do two things. We're going to unpack this. We're going to uh, unpack the first chapter 
uh, of Song of Solomon, what we just read. We're going to see what that's really about. But that's going to help us to understand there's a problem, what hinders us from knowing our worth, and lastly, we'll conclude with understanding the solution. Understanding the solution. But as we, we'll start from the first part where we, we're going to unpack this first chapter, and we got a little glimpse of it through that video. Uh, and what's been very difficult is, is us lead pastors and teaching pastors have been thinking about how to teach this. We've been racking our brains for months. We've met, we've had retreats to go over this entire book and to see how we're going to teach it. And because uh, oftentimes there's two ways to understand the Song of Solomon. Uh, and I don't know how many of you have read this. It's not one of those books where we just kind of read for fun in the morning or, or at night or whatever it is. Uh, but there's two traditional ways of reading Song of Solomon. There's a traditional way of where there's two main characters in this book. It's this woman and it's the king. It's King Solomon. And the whole book is about how King Solomon rescues this woman in distress, and they kind of live happily ever after. Uh, they go through some issues, you know, throughout the chapters, which will look like, but it's this, uh, it's this image of this weaker person, of this weaker woman, and this strong man uh, pursuing this woman, uh, and this woman in distress. So that's kind of a, a traditional way of, of reading Song of Solomon. But I would say, uh, and all, all of us, are, the, all the pastors at uh, Bethany, we would, we would say and submit to you that there is a second way, a more accurate way of reading Song of Solomon, where uh, there isn't just two characters, what we find is there's three characters. There's Solomon, King Solomon, there's the woman, but then there's this third party, another man that fights for the affection of the woman, throughout this whole chapter. And, and this woman is in a bind of, who do I pick? Do I go to this king, or do I fall in love and pursue the man who is pursuing me, this third party here? So it's kind of like, it's a love triangle. Uh, and a lot of you guys think the Bible's boring, the Bible's, you know, but I tell you, the Bible is loaded with a lot of drama, right? And some of us, we love drama, don't we? No. Good. I'm glad you don't. And here's the deal. Uh, this is really important because it actually shows a different view of the woman herself. In the first traditional uh, understanding, the woman is considered or viewed as weak and someone that needs to be rescued and someone that needs to be saved. In this third, uh, third perspective, it's very different where when we read it through that lens, the woman is actually uh, embodies a, an imagery of strength of freedom, of empowerment, of liberation. And, and, and I would say, a lot of us, all the pastors would say that Song of Solomon is about that. Yes, it's about love, but it's also about the view that the Bible has on women, which I think is very, very important in this age, in this day today. And so we opt out of that first traditional understanding where the woman, uh, where the man has, has so much superiority, rescues and all that stuff, we would actually offer the second one and say, you know what, actually, when read, we believe properly that the woman is actually seen as a source of strength uh, and power and choices and, and liberated outside of these cultural norms. 
And even in this traditional sense, King Solomon, even though he has a big harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines, he's seen as the hero. He's seen as the good guy. And, and we would say when we read with three people, three characters, that King Solomon is actually the villain. And the good guy is this third man who enters into the picture and so let me just read this again. It says, it says this. It says, the woman says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so this is the woman talking to the, we would call him the shepherd boy. We would see him as a shepherd. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me to his chamber. See, at the very beginning, we see the woman describing her love for this man, which we don't see oftentimes in, in this ancient context. It's usually this man pursuing the woman. And even today, it's all about the man pursuing the woman. There's nothing wrong with that. I, that's great. But here we see the tables have flipped, where now the woman feels empowered to say, here's how I feel about this man. I'm going to pursue this man. And here's what uh, she also said. She says, his, uh, let him kiss me, for his love is better than wine. So during these ancient times, uh, and listen to this, this is, this is really strange. During these ancient times, wine was seen as something good and pleasant. Strange, right? No, some of you are like, no, that sounds about right. See, wine was seen as something good and pleasant, uh, and she says, not only that, she said, she's kind of buttering up a little bit. She says, man, your love is like wine, which is uh, amazing. Uh, and not only that, she, she says, I can see why all the ladies love you. And, and then she says, I know why you're so, po uh, so popular amongst, amongst the ladies. She really knows how to make a guy feel good about himself, doesn't she? And she says, more than that, she's verbalizing her love and pursuit for this man uh, which, again, is different, very different in this context, in this social time that we're dealing with. And she uses words like wine, anointing oil, and perfume, which all is this symbolic uh, imagery of covenant, of marriage. And so we don't know where it happened or when it happened, but what we do see is that this woman is in this love triangle where she's part of this, this king's harem, but she's also married and in this covenant with this shepherd boy. And so she's with words like oil and perfume, again, all symbolic of covenantal marriage. But then in verse 4, we get to this weird, strange syntax, this weird sentence structure, where the original language becomes very, very important. She says, let us make, she says, let us make haste. Let's not waste, basically saying, let's not waste any time, my lover. The king has, verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now, different translations uh, translate this word brought in, in different ways, but the original Hebrew word is this word brought that says something about completion. It's already happened. The king, King Solomon, which is not the shepherd boy, has already used her and brought her into his chamber. Because back in those times, the king could have any woman he wanted and to bring him back to his chamber. The original word actually was bedroom. Where in the bedroom, he can do whatever he wanted 
where the woman would have no choice at all. And so this woman goes to this man that she has fallen in love with, has married, has entered into this covenantal relationship, and says, hey, let's hurry up, let's run away, let's, let's be together forever, let's, let's get out of here. The king has already done what he wanted to do with me. In verse 4, the king has already brought me to his chamber. Let's go. Can we get out of here, please, is what the woman is saying to the shepherd boy. And so we see that she's in this bind. She's forced into the king's harem where essentially she's his property. And at the same time, she will see, continue to see, that she's being wooed. Not out of force, not out of coercion, not out of violence or anger, but out of his love for her. In fact, out of mutual love with one another. See, what we'll see here and what we'll notice is that this woman believes that she is innately worthy. She sees her own value and worthiness, and it really becomes the bedrock of this entire book that we'll be dealing with. Easily she could have said, yes, that's all I am. I'm part of the king's harem. 700, he already has 700 wives, 300 concubines. The king typically can do whatever he wanted to anybody he wanted. He can take any woman to, to his chamber, his bedroom, as he pleases. And she could have just easily said and believed in that line, said, yes, take me, that's all I am. Then she says, No. That's not what I want to do. That's not who I am. I have more of my worth and of my value and goes to the one she actually loved, pursues him, and says, let's not waste any time. Let's get out of here. But see, oftentimes, we do the very opposite when it comes to love and intimacy. Instead of owning our own worthiness, instead of understanding that we are deeply loved and that we're deeply cherished, we have a lot of shame and we run away. We see this all the way from the beginning of time where Adam and Eve, they run away from God. They hide because they, they shift blame because they don't believe that they're worth being loved. And that's the problem. We get to the second point is that's the very problem. And the problem we can boil down to one word. If the question is, do you feel loved? Do you feel worthy? So worthy that you're, you're able to give that byproduct of love to others. The answer oftentimes would be no. And we'd boil down that one reason after the word shame. We feel unworthy of love because we oftentimes believe that we aren't good enough. We aren't worthy of it. One sociologist says this, it's, uh, shame is the most primitive emotion that a human being feels and it's lethal. And throughout this chapter and this entire book, the woman embodies what it looks like to go against what the world is telling her and latching on to who she, who she truly is and how she's truly been created in the image of God. Again, the lie that she could have easily believed is, 
I just am I'm just a woman. And I, could, I should just be part of this harem. Yet she refuses to simply be that. And she goes against all cultural norms and conventional wisdom and says, there's more to me than that. Furthermore, in chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, she says, I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. So the tents of Kedar were, were black. The curtains of Solomon were colored black. And she says, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. Now, during this time, being dark was a source of shame. Because it was an indication that you worked in the fields, uh, and that you had to work hard labor, and that you weren't wealthy enough to have servants. And so it, it, was, this, it was this indication of shame. In addition to that, in verse 6, it says that her mother's sons which were either her brothers or, or half-brothers, forced her into this labor outside. Uh, if we read this, it says, uh, it says, do not gaze on me because I'm dark. It says, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyard. For whatever reason, the brothers were angry at their sister. And so they forced her again. This is a significant, this is very significant, is that she and a lot of women become property of the king's harem, so there's oppressive state right there. Secondly, she's oppressed by her own family. Is that as a woman, as a daughter, that the brothers and the, husband, and the father can treat the, the daughter as basically like a servant. And says out of their anger would force the daughter into work the vineyards. And so she's explaining, yeah, that's why my skin has a dark complexion right now. Which is interesting because I just got back from L.A., uh, from Santa Monica, and I spent like a few hours on the beach trying to get tan. So it's a bit of irony. And it didn't happen, I actually turned red. So, uh, and that's a whole different story. And so again, during this time, she was trying to explain, yes, I see that my community, my sisters of Jerusalem, my friends, are giving me that look because of the complexion of my skin, and I'm telling you, the reason why that is is because my brothers were angry with me, and I had to work the fields. And even though that oftentimes that would bring a source of shame, she would say, don't look at me that way. I'm not just part of a harem. I'm not just, I'm not just, uh, my identity is not just based on, the, on my complexion. There's more to me than all of that. See, she has confidence. She advocates for herself. And again, says, do not look at me that way. Even in the face of oppression from culture, from her family, she knows something about herself, and that something is that she is worthy no matter what. See, many of us in this room would say, yeah, I mean, I do feel worthy of love to love and to particularly to, to be loved. Yeah, I feel pretty worthy about that. But at the same time, I really believe a lot of us, including myself, we would say, but I think I would feel way more worthy if you fill in the blank. Yes, I feel, I feel worthy. But I would feel so much worthier if 
If I lost 10 pounds, if I, some of us, if I gained 10 pounds, if I was younger, if I was, if I was older, if I got promoted, if I got better grades, if I had nicer things, if I did better here, if I did better there, then I would feel even more worthier. So the one reason why her brother, her brothers may have been angry is because of her relationship to the king, which again was not of her choice at all. And some of her shame uh, could have been caused from her brothers because she had to be taken into the chambers of her, of the king. And so perhaps that's where shame for her did fall into place. And so for a lot of us, we, even though we feel worthy, there's still that sense of shame. That if only, whatever that is, fill in the blank, if only I got better grades, if I had nicer things, if I did better here, if I did better there, if I lost 10 pounds, if I looked more physically attractive, then I would feel worthy. But see, a lot of us, the problem is we feel shame because we don't have those things. And some of us, are, some of us feel that shame because of our own mistakes and choices. And some of us, we feel that shame because of the things that we had no control over. Again, that woman had no control over being taken in the chambers of the king. And she should have and really had every right to feel shameful, especially during that time. See, in some of us, we have shame for the things that we had no control over. Maybe even being really practical. Maybe, maybe it's our culture. Maybe it's our race. Maybe it's our economic status. Maybe it's our gender. Maybe it's sexuality. Whatever it is, oftentimes it's that shame, whether we can control it or not, whether we can control the predicament or not, that shame bleeds into our lives. When we were studying this Song of Solomon, uh, we went on a little retreat, and Sarah O'Dell and I, uh, we were talking about uh, some different chapters that we'll get into. I don't want to spoil it right now, but uh, it's, it's, it deals with some heavy matters. And we're talking about shame, and, and in this context of what we're talking about, why would people feel shame? What does this have to do with our congregation? And in later chapters, it talks about uh, abuse, physically, sexually, verbally. And for some reason, I got, started getting really emotional, and I started crying when we were talking about this. And Sarah said, okay, I have to stop. I have to stop. And she says, Prince, what's going on? What's going, why are you crying right now? Uh, and I remember telling her, I said, I said, Sarah, I was just thinking about our congregation, our church. And statistically speaking, that there are a handful, if not several, women, and men, I'm sure, but statistically several women that have experienced some kind of abuse, whether it's physically, sexually, verbally, emotionally, whatever it is, and I can't help but to just weep knowing that that's true, even about our church. And what makes me feel even more sad is even within that group, there's shame in there, even though it wasn't their fault. And if that's you in this room, I just want you to know that you are deeply, deeply loved. 
and you are cherished, and you are worthy in the eyes of God. So do not believe in the lies of what shame brings, because you are worthy to love and to be loved. And on the other side of it, even if it is your own mistake, we've all made mistakes before. We've all made poor choices. We've all severed relationships. We've all uh, hurt other people. I would say the same thing to you is that you are deeply, deeply loved and you are cherished and you are worthy of love to be loved and to give love. See, there's no, I want you to hear this, there is no prerequisites for worthiness. You are enough right now as is. And yet we believe in the lies and we're blinded because only thing we can focus are on the mistakes that we've made, the choices that are, have been unhealthy, or even things that were forced onto us that we never asked for. Even in those circumstances, uh, worthiness has no prerequisites. God loves you, and because of that, that changes everything in the way you develop relationships with others around you, with God, your spouses, your friends, your family members, whoever it is. And, and we get to number three. That is the solution. It's knowing that you are worthy of love because of the one who has loved you first. I love what it says in Psalms 139. It says, For it was you who, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Basically, God, you created exactly who I am. And, and King David says in verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me say that again. King David, I mean, he says, I praise you, God, because I know that you have made me fearfully and wonderfully. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? See, sometimes we say, yes, I do believe it, but, no, there is no but. You have, you, are, you have been fearfully and wonderfully made from the very beginning in your mother's womb. And there's no sin, there's no mistakes, there's no hardships that can get in the way of that. And that changes everything. That changes everything. And in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we can now love. We can now love because he has loved us first. I want you to watch this video that may shed light and help us uh, in understanding this. I'm a forensic artist. Worked for the San Jose Police Department from 1995 to 2011. I showed up to a place I'd never been, and there was a guy with a drafting board. We couldn't see them, they couldn't see us. Tell me about your hair. I didn't know what he was doing, but then I could tell after several questions that he was drawing me. Tell me about your chin. It kind of protrudes a little bit, hmm. especially when I smile. Your jaw? My mom told me I had a big jaw. 
What would be your most prominent feature? Kind of have a fat, rounder face. The older I've gotten, the more freckles I've gotten. I would say I have a pretty big forehead. Once I get a sketch, I say thank you very much, and then they leave. I don't see them. All I had been told before the sketch was to get friendly with this other woman, Chloe. Today I'm going to ask you some questions about uh, a person you met earlier, and I'm going to ask you some general questions about their face. She was thin, so you could see her cheekbones. And her chin, it was a nice, thin chin. She had nice eyes. They lit up when she spoke. Cute nose. She had blue eyes, very nice blue eyes. So here we are. This is the sketch that you helped me create. And that's a sketch that somebody described of you. So yeah, that's... She looks closed off and fatter, sadder too. Mm -hmm. The second one looks more open, friendly, and happy. Mm -hmm. I should be more grateful of my natural beauty. It impacts the choices and the friends that we make, the jobs we apply for, how we treat our children. It impacts everything. It couldn't be more critical to your happiness. Do you think you're more beautiful than you say? Yeah. Yeah. We spend a lot of time as women analyzing and trying to fix the things that aren't quite right. And we should spend more time appreciating the things that we do like. Chapter one ends with the man, the lover, finally responding to the woman, and he says this, he says, ah, you are beautiful, my love. Ah, you are beautiful, your, your eyes are doves. Ah, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly lovely. It's an affirmation there. He makes a declaration of his affection towards her. He says, you are worthy, you are beautiful. And this is a story about our relationship with others, but this is a story about Christ and Christ loving his church. And throughout the New Testament, it says that uh, Christ is a bridegroom and we are, the, we are his bride. And I'm going to invite the ushers again uh, to be partaken to communion. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And what Jesus is saying to his church his bride to us is saying that you are beautiful and you are worthy because I have loved you first. It doesn't matter what kind of mistakes you've made, choices you've, you've done, the direction that you've gone. It doesn't matter what kind of cards our life has handed you. You are worthy of love. He says it is finished on the cross. He says on the cross, it is finished. No, you don't need to perform even when you do well, even when you don't do well, 
You are loved and you're cherished. And again, that changes everything. And when we know that we are worthy of love, then we can love others as Christ has loved us. And that's when intimacy is built. Friendships, marriages, relationships. It's based off that bedrock. It's to know that you are worthy of love because Christ has loved you first. So much that Christ died for his church, for all of us, you and me, on that cross and said, it is finished. So on that night that Jesus was portrayed, he took bread and he says, take of this. This is my body that was broken for you, the one I love, the one I cherish, the one I deem as worthy. And then he says, take this cup that represents the blood that was shed for you because I love you and nothing else matters. And may this change everything about us, about the way we view ourselves and the way we view others. Become sacred. Last week I did, and this is just a quick story, last week I, uh, for the like, first few times I did hot yoga. And I know we're at a church, so if you have a problem with that, I just stretched in a hot room with others. Uh, and, and as I was getting up, I was getting, as I was slowly getting up, the yoga instructor said, said, hey, when you walk out, be careful. Uh, the person next to you is sacred. Let them have their sacred time. And as I was walking out, just be careful not to disrupt others. That, that word just came to mind, that these people here, whether I know them or not, they're sacred. And I know that because I know I'm loved by Jesus Christ. And so this table is for everybody. At your time, we'll go inside and out. Uh, he'll take the bread that represents Jesus' body. He'll dip it in the juice. It's not wine, it's juice. It's gluten-free. You can go around and you can partake. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have shed your blood. You have broken your body so we know that we are worthy of your love. And out of that, we can love others and be loved so freely.